Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, it must be said, as once again, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Philip Cordell. Philip is the Managing Director at Ambro Plastics Limited, a plastics manufacturer in Telford, Shropshire, which produces a range of different products. Philip, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thanks very much. It's nice to be here. Um, thank you ever so much, Philip, for taking the time to come on and speak with us. Now, the purpose of this podcast, as I say, is to discuss the topic of leadership more broadly and bring together a variety of different perspectives on that. So what I'd like to understand okay. first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. So I guess to uh, be a leader, and whether you're <laughs> good or bad, I guess, you you have to um, you know command, uh, I guess, the respect of, of people around you. Uh, they... Um, they want to know that you have uh, some some semblance of control, um, and yeah, that you've got the answers. Uh, I guess, uh, and you don't always have the answers, but um, you know, hopefully, you've got your, you know you've got the people around you that you've um, trained up um, that you know that will uh, or brought into the business that will you know that will help um, help you make uh, better decisions as a as a leader. I guess. Mm. And how would That's you describe um, Philip? Perhaps your own leadership style. Um, I think I'm pretty fair. Um, I don't like the um, sort of uh, shouting style of, you know, of, of approach. Um, so I certainly listen uh, to what people have to say. Um, I'm pretty stubborn uh, in, in, you know, I do kind of like to have things uh, my way. But, um, but you know, you're also, you've got to take on board what, you know, what people are, uh, are saying around you. You know, you've got to give them the... Um, the uh, uh, yeah, the power, I guess, to um, you know, to make to make those their own decisions and run with them mm. and give them the rope, if you like, to um, yeah, um, to to see those things come to fruition. And you mentioned a real um, a couple of really important points there, uh, Philip. First and foremost, the importance of, of course, taking people with you and maybe letting them have some input. But secondly, as well, you also mentioned that leaders are essentially people who have to provide all of the answers. That is something, yeah. um, this mentality that the book stops with you, that is very, very relevant in the current environment, isn't it? Because with the current COVID-19 situation and, of course, what it means for employees everywhere as well, quite often in a lot of businesses that have had to shut down and furlough employees as a result of this crisis, there have been a lot of worried people looking at the business leader for all of the answers and in reality that business leader may not necessarily know too much more than the people around them and it takes a real level-headedness to keep communicating with them and giving them that sort of reassurance that they need and this all comes into sort of leadership and important qualities that are required of leaders doesn't it as well yeah absolutely i think I mean, this yeah, situations like this bring out obviously the best and the worst in people, and mm. you know, in yourself, in in the in the, in the people around you, and, and so on and so forth. And I think that um, I think one of the qualities, and I see it in in my people here, and, and, and probably myself, that one of the, the qualities of of leadership is actually maintaining a level head. I think when um, you know when the world is is sort of panicking around you. And we're a we're a manufacturing business, so we've had to um, <clears throat> stay open throughout uh, the the crisis. And we've actually developed a, um, a face shield um, that we've um, delivered like 1.2 million of so far, which is something that we've never never done before. So 
um, you know, we've had a reason to to maintain a number of our staff. That hasn't that doesn't mean that we haven't furloughed a lot of people. Of course, that was a concept that nobody knew about um, until <laughs> it was mentioned um, by uh, Boris Johnson and, uh, and and Rishi Sunak when uh, when the uh, the announcements were made about these this uh, job retention scheme. And of course, like you say, we you know I had no idea what that meant. Um, we've got. Um, uh, employment law um, assistance, um, and they didn't know what it meant, and so you know everyone's been sort of stumbling through. But you, you know, as you say, people look to you to to make the right decision, uh, whatever that decision may be, and help them. There's a lot of fear about you know people worrying about their own health and safety, um, and you know telling people actually, you know, we have got to keep going. Um, you've got to keep coming into work. Uh, is is tough, you know. Um, there's people. Everyone's personal situation is different. Um, there's not one rule, you know. We've, we're all told as leaders <laughs> that we've got to be consistent, um, you know, with our employees. Um, but it's not, you know, it, you're not dealing with robots. You're not dealing. Not everybody's situation is the same. Not everybody has the same outlook. Not everybody has the same pressures. And so, you know, you try and be fair where you can. Um, but, um, but you know, there have been, you know, some pretty. Uh, what feel like very harsh conversations, um, mm. you know, during this during this this period, particularly, um, you know, in, in in making sure that you've got the right people doing the right jobs at the right time, and 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 you know, obviously in a in a safe manner as well. So, yeah, it's been uh, it's been uh, entertaining. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and of course, being able to have those discussions, it takes another important quality of leadership, doesn't it? In terms of people management, you have to essentially adapt your approach to deal with different people because no one particular way of managing a person is necessarily going to work for everybody. It's about adapting to different personalities, isn't it? It's hugely yeah, important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's very. I think that you know is is the hardest uh, and, and most important part of what we do. You know, um, because we've got a you know a relatively small workforce but everybody as you say has their own uh, their own personality and so on and so forth and i've got a couple of good people around me who are used for for different different elements of that you know if i give out the top line message they've then got to um uh sell it to uh you know the people uh, on the shop floor or in the office and and so on and so forth um and got to you know back me up as I would back them up, um, you know, with any decision they made. So, yeah, it is it is the man management element. I think is the biggest challenge that we all face, really. Um, you know, because um, they are they are the lifeblood of the business. Um, yeah, whichever way you look at it, they're they're, they're what make it happen. And you mentioned as well that times of crisis such as this do bring out the best and the worst in people. Do you think from the experience that you've had of the pandemic so far, Philip, that there is um, a positive thing to draw from this experience in that dealing with this crisis and thrusting everybody, including yourself, out of their comfort zones, that's going to breed some form of resilience, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, if you'd have asked me a month ago um, where you know, how I felt about it or a little over a month ago, um, I'd have had my head in my hands and, and been shaking my head and, you know, really not knowing because business as we knew it had dried up. The, the certainly for Ambrose's perspective, you know, the introduction of this face shield and the speed at which we've been able to get that out into, um, you know, uh, you know, onto the market um, has, has, has helped breathe life into, uh, or thrown a lifeline, I should say, to the business. Um, through this period and, and just to, you know, so that we can come out the other side and then we'll have to see where we go from there. But we, we was, we've certainly pulled a lot of 
positives from what we've been able to do, how nimble we've been able to be with this product. Um, and, um, and you know, I think there's a lot of lessons to, to be learned there with products that we're, we're now trying to, that also relate to this, this area. Um, and how we've gone about it, you know, the, the moral sort of stance of, you know, um, all the profiteering that we see, you know, we, we, we know that we, we can manufacture these, these kind of products very quickly and efficiently and we priced it accordingly and, and, and that led to a lot of interest. And listen, I'm not going to say, you know, we're not a charity at the end of the day. We've, we've not done it for free. Um, we couldn't have afforded to, do, to have done it for free. Um, but, you know, we've made sure that we can get a, a good, uh, a good quality product, you know, in volume at, you know, a great value um, to people who need it. And, um, and you know, that those, those sort of lessons really for me, um, you know, are, are what are going to carry us, carry us through and hopefully influence, um, you know, the business further when we come out the other side of it. Mm, for certain. And um, if we think about all of that experience that you've had in dealing with this uh, crisis um, thus far, Philip, and also all the other years that you've had them um, in business as well, if you were to give some advice to somebody who were maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role within a business, what sort of advice would you give them? That's a great question. Um, what sort of advice would I give them? I think, you know, you need to be decisive. Um, that doesn't mean making decisions for the decision's sake. You know, you have to make sure that you've got all the information in front of you to make informed uh, decisions, but make a decision. Um, you know, uh, I think I found myself in, you know, certainly earlier in my career being um, – uh, well, procrastinating, let's say, uh, rather than just getting on and getting a decision made and 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 and, and getting on with it, you know the job at hand. Um, so that would be that, that for me is the biggest thing. You know, making making good decisions, well informed and uh, and quickly. Um, and not everybody can do it. And I'm not suggesting that I'm the, the world's best decision maker. Far from it. Um, but um, but certainly for anybody working around me, that's what I look for. I look for people who can make good level-headed decisions it's a lot about common sense yeah and you know that's, that's the way i look at it and you mentioned of course uh, decisions there as a key word philip do you think it's actually possible to really develop into an effective leader without maybe making a couple of decisions perhaps getting one or two wrong and then embracing that as a learning experience i think so i think i think i think we can all um we've all got the capability of learning um, uh, and, um, it, it depends, I think on how, I think you said there, you know, you, you embrace the fact that you've made a mistake there, you know, being able to hold your hand up and say, ah, I haven't quite got that one right, but making sure that, you know, we make good on, make, make, make good on that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to say that I've ever, you know, I've, I've never made a, a bad decision or a wrong decision, but you know, you, you, you live and die by those decisions and, mm. um, and you've got to you've got to make the make the most of the situation, uh, and as I say, not be afraid to say that you've, you've done something wrong. Um, and so, I, you know, certainly the people that that I have in the business, um, and there's always room for improvement. I think if you get to a point where you say, ah, you know, this is as good as it gets, then you know you should all give up at that point. You know, we all should be looking to better ourselves. Uh, and experience um, counts for so much. You know, um, I know that my style. Um, sort of filters down the business to, you know, to, to people, people within the, uh, who, who were directly, you know, sort of reporting to me and, and beyond. Um, and, um, and I feel that yeah, there are, there are people who, 
who, who don't learn from their decisions, uh, sorry, learn from their mistakes or learn, you know, learn, learn from the experiences they have. And you probably, you know, sideline those, but you see the people who have got the ability to learn and, um, and to better themselves and want to better themselves. That's the thing not everybody wants to at the end of the day. And if we do think about the future again, uh, Philip, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, do you give me an idea yeah. of what you envision the next 12 months holding for yourself and for Ambro and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also when we begin to emerge from this current COVID-19 pandemic and then out of the other side? Again, a great question. Um, that uh, I would love at this present time to have a crystal ball to be able to tell you. But, you know, what I see is that, uh, you know, I want I want to secure, you know, the future, the future of the business. Um, will we return quickly um, to where we came from in terms of the general economy, not just Ambro, but um, in terms of the general economy? Um, uh, you know, I, I really don't know. I think it's going to be a slow, uh, a slow recovery. Um, but I think you know if we if we all pull together, uh, we all trust one another and, and work together. Um, that um, you know we can um, you know we can make it work for this business and you know and, and certainly I think the, you know, the economy as a whole. I think you know we're a pretty resilient lot, um, and uh, and, I, and I think that you know we'll we'll pull up, we'll pull through the other side. Um, it'll take um, I would say a good you know twelve to twenty four months for us mm. to to get back to to where we want to be. Um, but, um, but, you know, hopefully we can, we can do that. And, and, you know, as I say, with the lessons, I always feel that, you know, um, without wishing to, um, sort of quite say, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You, it is, it is that kind of thing. You know, we, you know, these experiences will help us, you know, form a, a better and more secure future for our business, for the economy and, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, um, that's, that's how I'm, I'm looking to the future at the moment anyway. I suppose it's like bouncing a basketball, isn't it? Um, what hits the ground, of course, in that instance must, of course, bounce back up. And we will, of course, hopefully see that yeah. uh, within the economy and within business as well. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. Um, even though we are just about out of time on today's programme, Philip, what I think would be great um, for the uh, listeners tuning into this in particular would be in the next year, perhaps once we start to see that recovery coming about, is if we could catch up and maybe have you back on the programme just to catch up on how Ambro is doing and also how those changes are being borne out as well that we've discussed today. Um, but for now, yeah. Um, for now Philip I've got to say um, it's been a really insightful experience and also an absolute pleasure having you on the air with us today and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and speak with me it's been a a real pleasure oh thank you thanks for having me it's been uh, yeah it's been great I really enjoyed it it's been fantastic Philip and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well that's magic thanks very much indeed Thanks very much. That was Philip Cordell, the Managing Director at Ambro Plastics Limited. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss, the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. As a former um, player, Strauss is one of only three England captains to have won the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, and he is also the England captain with the second highest number of test victories in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood 
for services to support just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy 
everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But uh, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of 
a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, 
you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move at times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, freshly school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. 
and I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those. That would be yeah, so the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. Uh, very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah. Well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in Mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are yeah, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.